Welcome to the Shrapnel Podcast. I'm your host tonight, Sam McElwain. Usually I fly with my wingman Gareth, but he's a bit under the weather, or so he tells me he's probably off crying because Forrest were beating at the weekend. But yeah, hopefully he'll be back shortly with us. Um, tonight, though, I'm joined by Lauren Kerr. Um, Lauren was the Ulster Unionist Party candidate for East Belfast in the early 2022 Assembly election, in which the Ulster Unionists grew their share of the vote for the area. Um, Lauren is also the first openly gay and lesbian uh, candidate for East Belfast, and she uses her voice to advocate for the LGBTQ plus community within the Ulster Unionist and unionism in general. She's been involved in politics for 15 years, and God help her, she has a keen interest in football. Good evening, Lauren. How are you? Hi, Sam. I'm very well. How are you? Yeah, I'm all right. I'm all right. I'm a, I'm a bit sort of, I don't know, it, it's like I haven't got my lucky pen with me because Gareth's not here. You're sort of... Are you feeling lonely? I, I, no, I'm, I'm feeling I'm feeling off-centre. There's something just not quite right with the dynamic. <laughs> I think the way the screen's set up, there's only two of us on it and there's usually three faces on it. So maybe maybe that's it. But we'll, we'll play on and see how we go. Um, I suppose the first one I'm going to ask you because we had Robbie on uh, on our first mm-hmm. as our first guest, uh, and we talked to him about identity. Um, so we'll talk. We'll, uh, we'll go around about identity. I mean, do you see yourself as unionist, loyalist, both? And how, how do you see all that, and how it sits? Um, I th- I think both, um, and I think that's something that I. Uh, it's it's not a set thing for me, do you know. I think it's something that I tend to think about a lot, and and each of those parts and how they interact with each other, and which I kind of feel more at any given moment. Um, I think for me, I mean, I think unionism is probably the the easiest and most broadest description of of my political outlook, um, in terms of being pro union and pro Northern Ireland being being part of the United Kingdom, um. But I think that loyalism probably speaks more clearly to my day-to-day politics um, and where I'm grounded on those issues. Um, although that's that's something that I guess is, as things evolve in Northern Ireland, maybe um, I do question and go back and forth on. Um, but certainly in what would be probably the most widely understood kind of definition of loyalism, I guess, within, you know, if we're going to define it as you know, kind of like David Irvine type loyalism, well, that that would be where my my politics would probably sit, um, so yeah, I, I I feel kind of a, a blend of the two, um, and I think you know I guess loyalism as well for me also speaks to kind of working class politics and, and where I'm from. I'm, I'm a community, um, probably more than than unionism, um, but yeah, I think I think it's a, a blend of the two and and something that's an ongoing conversation within myself. Yeah, it is one of those conversations we we do have with ourselves. I mean, I, I'm a unionist and I vote unionist. But but at my heart, I'm, I'm a loyalist because the, the way I was brought up, um, loyalism is left of centre. Loyalism is working class politics. Um, I remember a, a local candidate in Shankle had that's on her, on her posters that you couldn't be a socialist and be a loyalist. I would argue that's the opposite. You know, <laughs> oh, you can't be a loyalist yeah. and not socialist in some some way. Like, um, yeah, because it is it is about the community first. Um, and, and predominantly that was working class or as it is now unworking class for a lot of it um the unemployment levels are through the roof so it's i suppose it's one of those conversations we do have unionism probably the the overall church it's probably probably being protestant and being a member of the presbyterians is best way to look at it or protestant being a methodist (laughs) it's probably a sub sub pocket of that um although i I don't think neither of us have seen the inside of a church (laughs) for quite some time um 
but yeah, I, I, it is one of those conversations. Um, and and where do you derive that from? Where do you find your your politics if you're if you're feeling that you're loyalist? Where do you find that sort mm. of left of center feeling coming from? Um, I I I think it's undeniable given the community I'm from. I think I kind of I didn't kind of look at the political spectrum and decide I was going to be left to centre. I think that was kind of the culmination of, of my environment and my upbringing and my uh, experience of life and my, you know, my community's experience of life. Um, you know, I don't think of myself as someone who is deeply ideological or kind of strangled by ideology. Do you know, I'm, I'm quite pragmatic and, you know, you know, not one solution will, will fit every situation. Um, but I think that my politics is... is definitely left to centre because of my experience of life um, and it's interesting you know I think actually that something whenever I think of kind of loyalism and um, being left to centre you know I wonder how much of that is uh, it kind of filled that niche that was left by the kind of the Labour Party in Northern Ireland dying off and you know that kind of long tradition of socialist unionists which you know my, my family was certainly part of um, and then that kind of lost its way and then kind of refound itself within within loyalism and i guess maybe that's where that bit of an a, an identity crisis if you can call it that is at the moment you know where 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 do we fit ourselves now you know and, and how do we define ourselves yeah i think that's a, a larger conversation because when we when yeah. we start discussing about culture and cultural stuff mm. um some people will struggle to point out what loyalist or unionist culture is and i think that's mm. a larger conversation that we need to be having within our own communities um yeah. But there are certainly people out there who are well educated in this and, and they know where their culture lies. Yeah. I suppose on the other side of this, if, if people look at you being a unionist, um mm-hmm. for years unionism was firebrand, um re- semi religious political uh policies. Um and and you're openly gay and, and you do speak on LGBTQ plus um sort of issues. How how comfortable of a fit is that within the Ulster Unionist for you at the moment? Um, it's comfortable. Um, it's it's comfortable because I'm comfortable. If if that makes sense, you know. Yeah, um, it certainly does. Yeah, um, and I, you know, I was I was a, I identified as a Unionist and a loyalist long before I openly identified as being a lesbian. So so maybe that's part of it. Um, but I think. I'm also not blind to the fact that it's it's not comfortable for other people, um, either within the LGBT community or within unionism. Um, and I guess that's why I do try to be as open and um, kind of public about it, because I think it's important to give a public face to it. Um, because, you know, it's it's not as easy to fear something when you know who it is, you know, and when you know it's the person that you work with or that you vote for or, you know, that you go for a pint down the pub with. Um so I guess that's what drives me to be more public about it and I would probably like to be just because doing stuff like this isn't a very comfortable thing for me. Um, but I think it's important to do that and I think it's important to show that, you know, certainly my experience growing up um, and being, you know, certainly open now is not um, is not reflected in the narrative of unionism. Um, and I get why that is the narrative of unionism because political unionism has not been anywhere good enough on these issues. Um, so, so I guess it's important for me in both senses to show people that there is other people like them, um, but also to challenge unionism within itself and within the structures of the political party that I'm in um, and other political parties, um, you know, so they know what they have to show up and represent us. 
We need the Ulster units that currently have a slew of uh, openly gay members and who are quite vocal on, on social media. Um, and people might think this is a new thing, but it's not. I mean, Jeff Dungeon certainly mm. blazed away many years ago before it became a cool topic to sort of be champion. I mean, so it's, it's not an improper fit for the Ulster Unionists to be doing this. You I mean, people may look at it and say, you, you don't belong in that party. Your, your sexual orientation should keep you out of it. But it, it doesn't. If actually, if people knew their history, it would probably fit better there. Um, how... How, how much of that community within the party are you seeing growing at the minute? Um, I, it, it is growing. And actually, you know, it's it's grown a lot, actually, particularly under Doug's leadership. It's, it's been quite striking. And I think that speaks to the importance of having, you know, figureheads who, who are very vocal and open on these issues. Um, in the, you know, particularly even whenever I ran for election, you know, I have party members who I didn't know about and hadn't met before because, you know, the joint during the pandemic or things like this, reaching out to congratulate me and, um, it was a real eye opener for me about just kind of the growth within the party, um, which is great. But, you know, I <clears throat> I think, look, obviously, within the last number of years, for reasons such as things like marriage equality and other issues like that, um, obviously unionism has kind of been seen to set itself against that politically. But if you look at, you know, outside of the last 15 years, no political party in Northern Ireland was, was very good on these issues. Um, you know, and if they weren't, actively working against and they were certainly just not really there and, and not making them a priority so you know I think there's been certain challenges for unionism in particular in the last kind of 10 years or more um, but no one has been very good on this and I think this is, is relatively new ground for all political parties in Northern Ireland Yeah, I mean we've spoken about how you feel within the party but but I think the most important bit is how does member of the LGBTQ community feel mm-hmm. about you being a, a politician or a future politician? Um, how how does that empower them or how do you take on board their issues and champion those issues? Um, I, I guess there's 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 kind of two parts to that. So I think there's the there's the visibility side of it, which I think in itself is really, really important. Um, I think, you know, we live in a country where within Northern Ireland, you know, last year it was only 40 years since Jeff had taken the case to the European Court of Human Rights and, and made sure that homosexuality was decriminalised in Northern Ireland. You know, that's in the lifetime of many, many people in Northern Ireland, of many, many queer people in Northern Ireland um, who have lived a life where they were illegal for because of who they loved, um, which has a chill factor, you know, and, and even 40 years later will still have a chill factor for many people. Um and also there are still, you know, a lot of prejudices still exist within our society towards LGBT people. Um, so the visibility piece is very important on, on two parts in giving people comfort that there's nowhere we can't go, you know, um, and that we can strive to be elected to public office, um, that we can go and take our place within political parties and, and advocate for ourselves. Um, and, and then also for people to see that we are active and equal members of society. Um, regardless of how they may feel or think, may feel or think. Um, and also it has an important part in, you know, parts of minds in, in changing people's minds or in, um, you know, making people see that we're not the boogeyman. Um, so it's important in that role, but then it's also important, um, you know, I, I think kind of nothing for us without us, you know, that, that kind of sentiment where, you know, with, with the best will in the world and there's been 
incredible outlays in, in the Northern Ireland Assembly in, in the last number of years and, and no less so than many in the Australian Party like you know like Doug himself like you know Danny Kennan back you know he was one of the first unions speaking in, in favour of marriage equality um, you know people like that who have been really really great and, and Mike Nesbitt as well who obviously made, made some significant interventions on it um, but I, I think it's very difficult to really get to the core of, of what we need um, unless you have queer people in the chamber because then you're relying on people to kind of add your issues to their very long list of issues that people are lobbying them on. Um, and, and also, you know, it's, it kind of elongates a process of, of convincing people and making sure they're right across it. And, you know, and if you just have queer people there advocating for themselves, then that, that cuts out the middleman and does a much better job, I think, you know. And in Northern Ireland, I think as well, we're, we've, we've come on leaps and bounds, undoubtedly. I mean, you look at public attitudes, they are you know, night and day to where they were even maybe 10, 20 years ago. Um, we see, you know, we now have uh, three openly gay MLAs elected to the Assembly, um, which is which is incredible. We see people across councils. Um, but I, I kind of worry that there's a, a, a kind of, uh, what would you say? People kind of think that we did marriage equality and everything's fine now, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Um, whereas marriage equality became very totemic and it became you know a symbol of, of whether we were accepted or not but it was also probably like very far down a lot of queer people's lists in terms of like something that would actually really change our lives and our outcomes you know so there's there's a lot to be done in terms of health and education um, and, and justice and you know I think that something that has been for me has been really important has been like you know, Robin took on obviously the health department um, at you know, <laughs> and obviously had you know the first global pandemic in you know hundred years to deal with. But he also did a really great job on a lot of LGBT issues, and that was you know, that was part of the journey that like he had come on and trusted people like me to take him on. Um, and I remember like back whenever he was leader, he set up a number of groups, um, which. He, he kind of recognised that unionism had kind of issues with certain sections of society and, and there just wasn't the relationships that there should be. So he asked me and Doug then um, and John Stewart to um, kind of head up this this working group with the LGP community. Um, and it took off the most out of them all because, you know, we, you know, I think people were probably thinking it might have been one of the more difficult ones, but we were pushing it an open door and, you know, people wanted to speak to us and, and wanted to have allies in the party and, and just wanted to have good working relationships. Um and, you know, you saw the accumulation of that work where, you know, we were bringing in the likes of the Rainbow Project and Cara Friend to do training with the UP assembly group. And, you know, you had all the UP MLAs sitting around learning about different uh, terminology and, you know, asking awkward questions. And and it was great. And, you know, it was, I think that's the way to do it, you know, because sometimes people would like to say more on these issues, but are scared of maybe upsetting someone or saying the wrong word or the wrong term. Um and and sometimes people just need a bit of reassurance that they're on the right track or, you know. Um, so I, I thought that was great. And I those are the sorts of conversations I want to have. You know, I, I don't mind if, if someone is coming to in good faith and with good intentions. Those are the conversations I will have all day, every day. Um, you know, because I think it's really important. I think it's really important for our community that if you if you can be a person who can have those difficult conversations. Um, and they're not even sometimes difficult, you know, sometimes you just tell someone maybe don't use this term that you used in the 50s maybe use this term that's a little bit more sensitive to, to people today but you know it, 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 it can just be transformative you know and I, I think that you see that in how quickly you know Robin was able to go in and do stuff around things like the blood ban you know um, mm-hmm. and hopefully we can do more on IVF 
um, and certainly on trans healthcare and, and other areas like that, you know, which, you know, don't have to be difficult, you know, doesn't have to be difficult. And I think just with those conversations and a bit of understanding, you know, um, we can very quickly make massive progress in Northern Ireland because we've kind of done so little for so long, you know, it's, it's, it's kind of tip of the iceberg stuff. So, um, yeah, I'm not sure what the initial question was at this point because I talked for so long there. But, um, but yeah, I, I, I think, um, yeah, I'll let you ask another question. I'll, I'll, I'll maybe I'll, give you a way out of this one. Um, if you had 15 minutes on the floor of Stormont mm-hmm. to make a proposal, what would it be on LGBTQ issues? Mm-hmm. It, it would be to put in place... Um, Compulsory universal sex and relationships education. Um, I think there's, there's, you know, there's, there's like, like with anything that's a complex problem, there's kind of, you know, a lot of different ways you can come at it. But I think in terms of being really transformative in terms of people's outcomes, um, because their experience at school would be different and therefore their experience outside of school would be different. I, I just think that that would be so transformative and so positive for so many people. Um, and also it has a knock-on effect of being hugely transformative and, and positive for, you know, heterosexual kids or, you know, whoever else. Um, and I say kids, you know, mostly teenagers. Um, but I, I think, you know, when you look at a lot of the outcomes for LGBT people, which are, you know, poor mental health or work absenteeism, um, unemployment, addiction issues, you know, a lot of it stems from their experience at school and a lot of that experience, that kind of extends from um, them being very much invisible in their experience at school and they're, a lot of the stuff that they're going through and feeling at that time isn't addressed or isn't acknowledged um, or is, is, you know, condemned. <laughs> um, you know, it de- depends on where, where they're coming from and, and, and what their background is and what their, their family life is. So, um yeah, I, I just think that, that that could be so transformative. Yeah. And uh, why we'll stick with the politics, um, um, we've, we've talked about the growing representation from the LGBTQ plus community. Women's representation within the House at the minute, um, I mean, I, I spoke earlier with a few other guests about how the Ulster Unionists lost seats as female. Um, do, do you feel that females are supported well enough? I know Kate Nichols talking about um, childcare at the minute, proper childcare for for MLAs, and there's a lot of people kicking you know usual crap about on Twitter about it. Do, do you think the workplace is geared for women within it? Um, I I I don't um and and I guess maybe more so if. You know, you're you're a woman who is is looking to start or is balancing a family. I can see how it would be really, really difficult um, in terms of of, of storming and and the setup there. Um, and I think what Kate is doing is is incredible in, in giving a face to that and kind of showing just just how awkward that can be. Um, but yeah, I do think that you know there there are the workplace issues, um, but I also think that there is. There's just a lot about getting involved in politics in Northern Ireland that I think makes women think twice, you know, and, and I think there's part of that which is, you know, probably a run over from the Troubles and the fact that, you know, that was a very kind of male-dominated space um, and, and something that, that not everybody has, has addressed as a, as a kind of 
legacy issue. Um, but I guess also then in this new kind of forum that we find ourselves in where people are just increasingly so easily accessible to people who want to troll them and, and you know, make them feel really bad about themselves for, for very little or no good reason. Um, it kind of puts women off. And, and also I think, you know, politics in Northern Ireland, you know, when you look at the sort of people who you may want to draw into Northern Ireland, I can see why they would look at the Northern Ireland Assembly and go, why would I give up my career I've worked so hard for, for that? You know, and, and that's maybe a little bit <laughs> blunt about it, but I, but I can see it, you know, and, and particularly if you look at the situation we're at the minute. You know, if you look at, you know, maybe women who have, you know, had careers in the health service or in education or, in, you know, have been solicitors or barristers, you know, or, or have, have worked, you know, running their own business or, or stuff like this, you know, or have been like figureheads in their communities. Like, why would they say I'll give it up to go and sit and storm it and be really frustrated, you know, and maybe not be able to do my job to, to yeah. the extent I want to? Yeah. Or, or not sit in the storm, as the case may well, be, I yeah. suppose. Yeah. And, and then the fact that you give up your career, you go in, you don't get a chance to sit, and you may have to stand for a election again, lose that seat, and then the career you've got to re- retake. Um, I'm going to cross the, the, the LGBT stuff and, and football at the moment. Um, <laughs> I, love the way, I love the way you laugh at that. Um, we, we were talking before we came on about the labelling of, of football and women's football, which we both don't like, and you sort of indicated that you were going to label it differently. Um, but the growth has been phenomenal. Yeah, yeah, it's been extraordinary. Um, and it's been, I think it's been a very long time coming, you know. Um, I mean, and, and actually I think it's, I was looking today, I mean, it's crazy even how in you know, when was the Women's Euros in July? I mean, what's that, three, four months? I mean, you know, I looked at, I think, Arsenal women, because I'm an Arsenal fan, so I tend to look at, you know, those things through the prism of Arsenal. Um, <clears throat> but, you know, they played Boreham Wood, which <coughs> I think someone I follow was saying, on Twitter was saying, you know, maybe last season for a big match, you'd have been lucky it was three quarters full. And yesterday on a day when Arsenal men were also playing, people were doing a double header where they were just going out to Boreham Wood after the Emirates and it was like sold out or almost sold out, you know, and that's, I think that's been the power of the Euros in England actually that has just really kind of woke people up to, to how great women's football is and, and how accessible it is actually as well, you know, because you're not paying. You know, I was having a look at, um, I was over for the, the North London kind of women's derby there. Um, I mean, I paid £12 for a ticket at the Emirates, you know, yeah. for a sold yeah. out match. Which, you know, would you be lucky to be paying maybe 60 quid for a men's game? Um, so it's night and day on that front. I think it's really good for, for people who want to get their kind of kids into it at a young age as well. But also, like, I went over, I mean, I was over there last month for that Arsenal Spurs match. And I mean, got on the tube line, um, heading up to like, Holloway. And the train was bunged with Arsenal fans all going to the, the women's derby. And it was just full of, like, fellas with women's names on the back of their tops. <laughs> Like it was extraordinary, you know, and yeah. it was class. Yeah. And, you know, the kind of the same experience with like going over to the Euros there um, with Northern Ireland in the summer, which in its own way was so significant because, you know, Northern Ireland qualifying for a major tournament isn't something that, that happens every day. But I think just for, for the women's team and the journey that they've been on in terms of, you know, 20 years ago, kind of just kind of fell apart, you know, and, and had to, it was the players themselves that drew themselves back into existence and kind of just, um, built it from the ground up themselves so it's extraordinary and it's just I mean I think like FIFA 
is coming out in December and it's got the women's league on it for the first time and you know you look at all the marketing campaigns and it's got all like you know the top women players for the clubs as well and it's fantastic and like I remember I played football in school and like I used to play at lunchtime like like in the playground whenever I was like you know mm. five six seven mm. eight nine and I mean at one point the headmistress so there was boys games and girls games um, on like a Tuesday and a Wednesday and the girls games was hockey and netball and I went I just love sport but really really love football so she changed the rules so boys games was like boys games on me and it was me playing football with boys like every Tuesday after school <laughs> and, um, and and that was kind of it you know and there was no like girls teams for me to go and play with and you know I became a teenager and you know that kind of all fell away and um, but I kind of look at it and go oh, you know I love it like I do you know and as much as I'm, I'm kind of a little bit envious sometimes when I look and go god could I have been you know playing for Northern Ireland now um, probably not, but um, but yeah, it's just it's incredible. Yeah, I, mean, I suppose one of the, the indicators of growth and and the fight that the the ladies have had to put up themselves is probably the Republic yeah. of Ireland's team. Then we're going to ignore yeah. the the other issue because that's been done yeah. that does it. But yeah. from one mode of not having tracksuits and a kit of their own, mm. all of a sudden they're qualifying for a major tournament, a proper sponsorship, you know. So. I think I think we're going to look at sort of how this game has exploded. That's probably one of the indicators, uh, and the other one was probably the lionesses in the summer because the football coverage. They they, they could have been ninety men's games that day, and it wouldn't have mattered. There was one one game that's going to be all over the back page and the front page of every paper. Um, it, it is great to see. It's incredible, and I I mean, sorry, go ahead, Sam. I was going to say, but can we do more? Yeah. We, we can, we can, we can always do more. And I think, you know, actually, I think that women, in most instances, the, the teams are exceeding, or succeeding, sorry, despite or in spite of kind of the, the support that they're getting, you know. Um, and, and I think like the, like the Republic team, like theirs is one of the most stark examples of, you know, they literally had to threaten to strike um, to, be, to be taken, you know, seriously to the level that they deserve to be. Um, which is incredible just in seeing people like understand their value and taking shit basically you know it's great but you know and, and the women's team like in Northern Ireland like I think at one point they were paying themselves to go and play tournaments because they wanted to and they felt they had a right to go and be able to represent their country you know so um, I, I think there's a lot to be done I mean you saw that with the England women after they won the Euros I mean one of the first things they did was write to the Prime Minister, even though we've now had, I think, two since then. But, you know, they wrote and said, like, you know, like, we've given you a great summer. Now is your time to put up and make sure that we can have more great summers. And I think that is where it is where, you know, even in terms of Northern Ireland, like, what's the legacy going to be? You know, we went to the Euros and had a great time, but what's the legacy? You know, when are we next going to a major tournament? You know, what is, you know, when are the girls going to be able to be paid the same as the men or train full time? You know, where's professional contracts coming from in terms of you know our Irish league clubs looking at the models in the same way men's teams are here um you know you see what you know teams like Arsenal you know you see you see the teams in the, the women's kind of super league who have invested and invested early you know um you see like Arsenal and Chelsea who are just like out there running away with you know and you see the quality of players that they can sign in terms of you know people who were stars at the Euros are now playing in England um but you also see like you know like teams like Barcelona um, Real Madrid who have obviously really invested into it and, um, and a lot of those Nordic teams um, and you can just see where the quality is in terms of who's really put up and I think that's been the problem where women's teams were almost like tolerated amongst the associations for, for a long time and, and maybe it was something that they had to do maybe it was something that they thought 
well, you know, it kind of looks good to have a women's team. It's a tick box exercise, yeah. Value tick box exercise, yeah, yeah, it was a tick box exercise. And I think actually, I guess there's a little bit of, you know, it makes me grate my teeth a little bit whenever I think now that you see there's kind of potentially money to be made through this, do you know, that, that suddenly people are jumping on board, you know, because the talent's always been there, um, but just the investment and support hasn't been. So I think it's now time to see people kind of meeting those women with the, the investment and support that they deserve, you know. I think we're very slow in, in levelling the playing field, excuse the pun, across sport. Um, yeah. We've seen the arguments within tennis about pay grades. Yeah. Um, I mean, it wasn't that long ago that a, a woman had to break into the, into the marathon to run it because men had deemed she wasn't capable of running it. Um, we, we are very slowly dragging ourselves. Yeah, it's not that long ago, Sam, that women were, were banned from playing football by the FA because, you know, it had become too popular after the war, <laughs> you know, whenever all the men went away and the women's game exploded, you know. So, um, you know, I, I think it's important to kind of remember that there's there's been some attitudes that have got us here as well, you know. Um, yeah. and, and you're right, it is right across the board. And, and, and actually, like, it's kind of disgraceful that, it kind of has taken protest in most cases for women to get what they deserve. I mean, even with tennis, I mean, it was the likes of Billie Jean King breaking away and saying, well, we'll pay ourselves what we think we deserve and go on our own tour here. Um, so, and it's kind of disgraceful if you look at the example of the Republic team where, where they had to do the same, where they had to be like, well, we'll just not play them. You know, if you're going to make us change into tracksuits and toilets, then we'll treat you with the contempt that, that we think you deserve. So, um, yeah, I, I think it's it's just unfortunate that still people have to be seen to be dragged, kicking and screaming, and to just giving people what they deserve. Yes, it seems to be a, a theme across a lot of things where um, niche, we'll call them niche, and I don't think that's fair because they're not niche, but those tech box exercises that a lot of big businesses look at, they sort of have to be dragged in their place. Um, I think this year, did we pass it? Was this year or last year that the period poverty stuff passed and storm out as well? Yeah. I, why was that even an issue for so long? You know, it's, I mean, yeah, I know, of, I know of a few sort of uh, higher education schools that have taken this on and they're providing their own long before Stormont came in. They, they were finding funding for it. But why are we making young girls struggle in, in, a, in a society where they're already struggling? Yeah, you're right. And it's, it is this kind of thing where, you know, I think I think that's that also shows the importance of of more women being being in politics because unless you've lived it, it's kind of hard to understand it. Um, and and I think a lot of these things are just because men have been the policymakers for so long and it hasn't been a lived experience for them. So why would they come up with solutions on these issues? You know, well, if they had to go through it, they would soon come up with solutions. Well, yeah, yeah. Well, we'd have a week's statutory leave. I think. <laughs> <laughs> once a month but um but yeah and i i think the kind of the period product stuff is is gives kind of uh, is, is a touchstone for that because you know on the face of it if, if you kind of landed here today from mars and this issue was explained to you, you go well that seems like a fairly you know easy thing to sort out but yet it took us months of legislating and some places still haven't done it and you know it's not a universal right so um yeah, I think it's a fantastic outfit for more women in politics. Yeah, uh, across the board, I think you we could do a lot more. Um, 
Uh, I think the next one's a question I'm going to ask. It's probably not a fair question to ask, but I'm going to ask it anyway. <laughs> if if asked to, will you stand again? If asked to, I mean, I mean, yes. Like, I'm not, I'm not against it. Do you know, I think I didn't come into politics with the intention of of standing. I come into politics. Um, I mean, I I literally did work experience whenever I was fifteen with the UP. You know, and it, and it went from there. Um, and I also didn't kind of intend to work for the UP. That that kind of just happened. You know, I. I gone and, and studied journalism and, and kind of ended up helping the UPI during election um, and never left which is, is how I've kind of been there and, and, and worked through various positions um, and I, I did I have considered it previously maybe a council because I do there's stuff I would like to do do you know and I do think particularly a council level in Northern Ireland that that there's there's a lot of opportunities there to do really good things for your community Um but the opportunity come up at the start of this year to run for Stormont, and I kind of took it because it was it was East Belfast, you know, which was which was a huge huge draw. Um, you know, I don't think I'm, I don't kind of want to be a politician so much that I would just run anywhere. <laughs> you know, the fact the fact that it was my home constituency was was the big draw, um, and being able to do things for for the people I've grown up with, um, and for for that community was was really important, um, and and also just to be a a voice for unionism that people might not be that familiar with. You know, that that was a big draw for me as well. Um, and, and in terms of my experience of running, I think it was, it was pretty much a good one. You know, I, I did really enjoy it. I did, you know, enjoy canvassing and um, campaigning. Um, and I enjoy kind of having a, a bit more of a platform just to, to speak about things that I cared about um, and that, that I feel are important. Um, and it was... It was nice, do you know, in terms of the, the feedback I got from people, do you know, and, and kind of the emails that people went out of their way to send you that, that they don't really have to. Um, that was great, you know, and I didn't, you know, I think, you know, too, disproportionately so, I think, unfortunately now, whenever people think of running for election, they think of getting trolled or, you know, kind of relentlessly on Twitter, which is, which is a, unfortunately, too big a part of it. But, um, yeah, I, I, I had a pretty good experience that way, so... Yeah, I wouldn't. I wouldn't be averse to it. I don't think it would be a kind of universal yes. You know, again, I think I would have to feel that it was it was somewhere where it could make a difference and and do something positive. You know, um, well, what's, yeah, what's the do, saying? It so. if you want to be a politician, you shouldn't be one. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. I, I, I suppose it. on the back of that is who are your political icons, past or present? Who 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 inspired or who drove you forward? And, and I particularly asked this and question I because I've seen you tweet about the passing lately of Baroness uh, mm. May Blood. Um, yeah. I had the privilege of, of knowing May growing up. A powerhouse, absolutely powerhouse mm-hmm. of a woman. Um, so I was just keen to find out where your influences came from. Yeah, I. this is the sort of question that I'll answer and then hang up and go, oh, she was at that person. <laughs> and then I'll have to text you afterwards and ask, can you put them in footnotes? Um so, May blood, obviously. You know, I I think even as a, a child, I was aware who she was. You know, being on the news, and and I came from a house that wasn't party political, but was political. You know, so I was very aware of kind of what was going on at the time. So you know, all those those bigger figures were there. I think um, locally, certainly people like um, 
And I, I think I will caveat this by saying I, I don't really subscribe to the idea of like heroes or people, you know, giving people a free run because they kind of admire something they've done, you know? So I think you kind of have to see people as human beings and everyone's kind of capable of, of failure or, or saying things that you might not necessarily agree with. So um, <clears throat> I caveat it with that, but, but definitely my blood, definitely, you know, someone like David Irvine, who was a big figure whenever I was growing up and he spelled fast for sure. Um, and, and someone whose who's politics and what he, kind of his vision for, for this community and, and for people around here that, that I can definitely and still do identify with. Um, I think certain, I'm going to name a load of people, <laughs> uh, certainly Don Purvis, you know, she, she was someone I think actually she was probably one of the first people I really, really identified with in politics here. Um, and it was just seeing a, a loyalist woman um, was was incredible to me at the time. And then, you know, her pro-choice activism kind of after that has, has been something that I find really inspirational. Um, who else? I, do you know what? I, I like a lot of people. There's a lot of people around the UP that I like. And I remember whenever I first got involved and um, used to talk a lot to like people like Fred Cobain, who obviously it's not the UP anymore, but like, and then like Michael McGimsey, Michael Copeland, like Reg Ambe, obviously. Do you know, a lot of those people like were a big part of my like day to day kind of formulation of my thoughts and, and, and outlook and quite a kind of, they're, they're, all, they're all very good like kind of settling presences, I think. Um, who else wider than that? I mean, I love like Barbara Castle. Do you know, I think like Barbara Castle is just an extraordinary character. Um, and just, you know, I, I kind of wish we had more big characters like that today. Do you know, I think kind of she comes from an era of, of politics that I wish we had a little bit, bit more about us. Um, more wider than that. Goodness me. Do you know what, actually, I, I, I really admire, and not necessarily for the reasons you might think, but I I read a lot, um, I read a few books at the start of this year about Harvey Milk, who obviously I kind of knew for, for obvious reasons in being one of the first openly gay politicians. But also like in reading his kind of biography, um, which is called The Maricastro Street, it's really, really good. But, you know, he was, he was a big coalition builder, do you know, and he was an openly gay man, but he... You know, a lot of his campaign was actually against like the gentrification of San Francisco. You know, and was was about um, supporting workers. And you know, he like he was you know one of the first people to support the Coors kind of delivery drivers in making sure that all the gay bars stopped serving Coors until their pay dispute was sorted out. You know, and, and and all this kind of stuff. And it was just, I just really really identified with that in terms of um, different groups in society uniting around those kind of issues and. The importance of minorities or you know underrepresented groups kind of coalescing together um, and supporting each other. Um, yeah. yeah. So so that's a kind of a a round robin. <laughs> um, I'll, I'll probably kick myself once I come off this. So I've no, forgotten no, someone. No. I would be the same as yourself. I mean, I don't have heroes. You always get this question: if you could have half an hour with somebody past or present or living or dead, who would it be? And I'm always sort of scratching my head, going. Who would you have? But I, what I did have growing up was the the privilege of having an experience of growing up around the likes of Gusty Spence, Sam Plumsmith, Eddie Kenner, Billy Mitchell, Billy Hudson, Davy Irving, who who aren't heroes for me, but they were influences. Yeah. Um. And and that's that's how I would see those guys. It's not. It wasn't about. And then, as I said, my blood. 
because I the family I grew up in, we were uh, a matriarchy. Yeah, um, me too. Yeah, it was my mum, my aunts run the show. Um, so powerful women, in in the proper sense of it, you know, yeah. who who can cope under pressure, who knew what chaos was and knew how to navigate yeah. through it. Th- those those were the people that I looked at. Um, and to be honest, some school teachers. Um, yeah. I, I was lucky. I went to the boys' model, and there was there was two particular teachers there that really had a formative issue on me. I mean, they they they, and it wasn't because they were done anything special with me. They didn't. It was just how they taught, and how they spoke to the boys. And they were both local teachers that lived in the area, so they were very good at sort of talking on our level. Yeah, yeah. No, I I I think like you know even that example I gave earlier of like you know, the, the school principal, I think she was from the Shankill actually, um, who kind of changed the rules to allow me, you know, I think that had a bigger influence on my kind of life and outlook, you know, that moment of kindness, like just something like that has a bigger influence on me than, you know, 10 political speeches I might read. Absolutely. Yeah. I suppose now what I'll do is I'll let you off and you'll go away and I'll get a message in the next 10 minutes going, I should have mentioned, how did I miss this? How am I'm I going to go? I'm my bookshelf. I should have scanned it, shouldn't I? And just read, like sounded really intelligent reading off all these people. Yeah. Well, I'll just, I'll tell everybody that the bookshelf behind you is phenomenal. It's got all the best well, books well, in the Well, the world. first book I looked at was, was Maggie Thatcher, so maybe we'll just move on. <laughs> yeah. I suppose the other thing is you might get a phone call from your, your boss as such, the... Say why did you not mention his name as a as an influence? Well, well he is, you know, and I, and I think um, uh, not not to sound too defensive, come back, Felon, but I I think he'd probably be quite embarrassed if I had said it. But you know, you know, he is, and and yeah. I think in terms of yeah. politics, he's certainly someone I've worked with who, um, yeah, we just got on really quickly because we just had quite similar outlooks, you know. And I think also he's someone who is a problem solver, not a kind of problem creator, you know, and and he has that rare quality in northern our politics where he kind of takes a second, you know, um, when when there's problems. So, um, yeah, he, he definitely is. And I think, you know, you saw that a lot. I think he commit, he was someone who commended politics and people had a lot of assumptions about who he was going to be, you know, obviously coming from this, this long military career. Um, and I think he kind of dispelled all that pretty quickly, you know, um, and, and shocked a few people. So um, I, I like that quality as well. You know, I like it keeping people on their toes in, in politics and, and not conforming to what people may assume about you. Yeah. I think you, you certainly do that. I mean, you don't fit comfortably into what a lot of people will see as those tidy wee boxes that we put people into. Um, you're unionist, therefore you shouldn't be a member of the LGBTQ community. Um, yeah. Or vice versa. Or vice Some people might think that if you belong to that, that group, you shouldn't be a unionist because, well, they're against your community as such, and yeah. I think you're breaking down barriers the way you're going. So keep keep going, um, and hopefully, and you don't have to stand again. Hopefully, we can get this show on the road. Um, uh, but it's 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 nice to to have a chat with you. I mean, uh, you're probably the first one in a, in a list of possible candidates that we're going to talk to you over the next couple of weeks, and it was planned to do this long before we thought there was going to be an election yeah, we, we, we thought we'd talk to a few a few new people new fresh faces involved in politics from across um different parties and, and some people have responded and yes they're up for um guys who we thought wouldn't and the guys we thought would aren't really coming back to us in the minute so we'll have to chase a bit harder 
but now, now there might be an election coming up. I think <laughs> this is take, this is taking on an entirely different um, sort of stance. Uh, Lorna, yeah, I'll not keep you any longer. I'll let you go and wallow in yourself doubt of who you've named tonight and who you haven't <laughs> named. And hopefully, I'm going to have Robbie Butler texting me when he listens to this. <laughs> uh, I, I I don't know now. Does he text anybody? Ever? <laughs> Ever? Oh, let's just be you, Sam. <laughs> Listen, um, thank you very much, um, and that was brilliant. And we'll maybe maybe have a chat sometime in the near future over a coffee somewhere. Yes, I look forward to it. I look forward to it. Sam, good to speak to you.